Welcome, um, Chris uh, Rissmith, uh, Professor at uh, Queensland University of Queensland, one of the distinguished scholars of uh, international relations. It's a pleasure always uh, listening to um, Chris at um, ISA and different conferences. He has several works, uh, two of them that are most relevant for our conversation is the first one is on cultural diversity and the second one is on culture and order in world politics, which is a edited, co-edited volume, just came out, I believe. And um, what impressed me is that you're one of the few scholars, uh, Western scholars in particular, looking at uh, culture as a subject matter and then uh, other cultures that are of uh, interest uh, uh, to our general audience in, in particular. What is the key argument you're making, especially in terms of the role of culture in international politics? Is it that important? You know, some people say it is epiphenomena or not as, it, as important as structure, but, but clearly you found it a lot more interesting. So I think that I mean, the, the, the project that I'm working on now and the second volume, importantly, was was uh, a work that I collaborated with Andrew Phillips right. on. And he, he was, it's very much a, a, a joint project. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we were um, trying to do in, in, in that volume and what I'm trying to do in the first volume and then eventually in the third volume is to try and shift the debate within international relations about the impact that culture has on international order. Mm -hmm. Because this is a subject of, of, of uh, great relevance today, it's something that comes up, particularly around uh, the rise of China and the rise of India. Uh, and generally the debate occurs between kind of two poles. Yes. So on the one hand you have what, what I call uh, culturalists. Mm -hmm. And this, this is a tradition that goes a long way back in international relations. And I think it's actually the dominant tradition at the moment, mm. which is a position that says international orders grow out of unitary uh, cultural contexts. Mm. Uh, they require those sort of thick cultural contexts mm. to provide the normative foundations of international orders, to shape the nature of the institutional practices in an international order. Yeah. And from that perspective, when you get heightened cultural diversity, you get a, a, a weakening of international order, right? a fragmenting of those, yes. those foundations. Centrifugal forces. Right, and that's a, that's a position that, uh, you know, of course Samuel Huntington was famous for that, mm -hmm. but actually I think th this has a much longer history. It's a very strong tradition within the English school, mm -hmm. but you also find it uh, in, in other schools of thought as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you see it very strongly in policy debates right. now. And of course, this is the worry about the rise of China, yeah, is that yeah. China will fragment or undermine the normative yes. cultural foundations yeah. of the order. Yeah. Now, that position is countered by, uh, by a, not what I would call an institutionalist position, mm. which is one that says, don't worry about cultural diversity. We solved yes. that problem back at the Peace of Westphalia and yeah, the Wars yeah. of Religion. Yeah. Uh, and we, we invented things like the institution of sovereignty yes. and the associated institutions of non-intervention yeah. and, and self-determination. Yeah. Uh, and that these institutions are, are, are ideally suited for yeah. managing a world of culturally different states. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, and then you get a kind of a, an added version of that, which is the kind of liberal institutionalist version, the John Eikenberry version, that right. says that institution, liberal institutions that are open and rules-based 
can accommodate all states, providing they're willing to play by the rules the of the game. So the liberal game. Of the liberal game. Now, those arguments struck me as deeply problematic, both of those positions. The, the first position, the cultural disposition, seems to be strikingly at odds with everything that anthropologists and sociologists and cultural studies scholars, historians, lawyers, have been telling us about the nature of culture. Mm -hmm. And the dominant view, for at least for 30 years within those fields, is that culture is not a unified thing. Culture is, culture is always heterogeneous, highly variegated, often deeply contradictory, mm -hmm. not neatly bounded, highly interpenetrated. Yes. And that if that's the case, mm -hmm. uh, then it's simply not possible that international waters emerged in uni unified cultural context. Yes. And in fact, you know, new histories of just about any international order that you can think of from the Roman Empire through the Ottomans, yes. through the Chinese, through early modern Europe, yes. is telling us that actually these orders emerged in very heterogeneous cultural contexts, mm -hmm. and that in fact the management of cultural difference mm -hmm. was in fact a key imperative of order building. Right, part of the imperial project was always to create was, was always about ordering yes, of ordering cultural difference. And Alexander onwards tried to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and the institutionalist argument is problematic, uh, not because institutions don't matter in shaping culture, but because the belief that institutions somehow neutralise yes. cultural difference is deeply problematic. Institutions don't neutralise culture, they organise it, right? They create it in, they create, they create all institutions create certain forms of difference that are defined as unacceptable, they hierarchise certain yes. forms of cultural difference. Mm -hmm. So institutions are important, but for the way in which they order cultural right. difference, right. not for the way they neutralise yeah. cultural difference. They don't take out cultural issues. No. So that's actually it's an interesting point, but you know comparative politics, our cognitive discipline, tends to look down upon culture. Once upon a time, culture was very important. Yes. They think uh, culture is not as important, it looks structures right. and political institutions. So I think one of the problems with the way in which people have tried to think about culture mm -hmm. and uh, that I've tried to, to get around or to move beyond is that people have tried to think about culture as a cause. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So culture matters if a set of cultural meanings or values is shaping behaviour, right? Mm -hmm. And then the debate is, you know, what kind of cause is it, right? Is it a, is it a necessary and sufficient yes. cause? Is it an intervening variable, right. right? And so the, all of the debate is about, is cultural cause? Is a determinant, right? Term. right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you, if you, if instead, mm -hmm. particularly if you're trying to think about how culture relates to international order, a better starting point is to say, not how culture creates order or mm. constitutes order, mm. but rather how the very fact of cultural heterogeneity mm. creates certain imperatives and incentives right. for the construction of orders. Mm. So if you think about, I want to think about cultural difference and heterogeneity as like a structural condition, mm. right? That actors, just as actors have to deal with unequal material resources, yes. right? They also deal with constructing political orders, legitimate political orders in diverse cultural contexts that they then have to choreograph and order and shape and construct and tailor in particular ways. Yeah. So culture doesn't shape political orders yeah. through being a necessary and sufficient cause. Yeah. It shapes it by creating a condition 
that establishes certain imperatives mm -hmm. for governance. It's a conditioning variable. In right. Some sense, yeah. So that actually is interesting. But one one thing is that you notice cultures existed all the time and regional systems, you know. But the standard realist response is they all want power, they all want uh, dominance, they are all looking for status. You know, we can narrow it down to a set of variables that may be more interesting in terms of understanding rather than going to culture. But the, that is a very narrow view of, uh, I think, realism. And, and also one of the points that many realists say is states seek the advancement of power, dominance, and all this. But it, it doesn't give us a good understanding. And, and your work is, when you read it, you know, the richness of it was very impressive. So I think, I think a lot of this comes down to a fundamental difference mm. in how you see international relations mm -hmm. and how you see international order. Right. So for me, you know, the central, what is, what is, you know, the essence of international relations is the shifting configurations of political authority mm. over, and time. over time mm. and the human and environmental consequences of that. Mm. Now, and related to that, I think about international orders as, and this is the language I use, is as systemic configurations of political authority. And I actually don't think that states spend most of their time competing for raw power. Mm. I think much more of what goes on in international politics are struggles over political authority. Mm. Right? And as soon as you think, and in fact, just about any issue, right? I've just, in fact, written the new uh, Oxford uh, very short introduction to international relations, in mm. which I make this case for a focus on the political or? authority. No, the little. Uh, the little uh, uh, this okay. is this is the China one, but okay. but I've done the international relations okay. one, okay. and if just about any issue you look at now is mm. in fact is about a struggle over political authority, mm. Right? Mm. and if you, if international orders are configurations of political authority, mm. then I think you start talking about things like legitimacy, right. how political power is legitimated in particular contexts, and then it's inescapably mm. connected to the cultural environment mm. in which. Orders are constructed. Right. And that poses a question about the liberal understanding of cultures. And the liberals have a problem with this uh, concept of heterogeneity because liberalism very much uh, rooted in the European Enlightenment project and developed there over a period of centuries. And where do we go in that context of heterogeneity and the liberal attempt to homogenize in a way? To make it liberal, the world liber only when the world is liberal there will be peace. You know the Kantian idea. You know, sorry. So how do we how do we cope with these uh, divergent positions? Uh, so order. It, so you know, of course, there's a tension within mm. liberalism. Mm. So there, you know, by one strand of liberal thought, liberalism is in fact a philosophy of difference. Yes. Right? Mm. So it's a philosophy that says there is no single conception of the good. Mm. Right. And so in a world where we have no single conception of the good, we need institutions yeah. that enable people to live together. Yes. Right? Now, of course, that's usually cast in the language of interests. Mm. Right? Individuals have different interests. Mm. Okay? But that can also be uh, a conception of a world in which people share different cultural values, mm. have different cultural values, mm. and that a liberal society is one that in fact allows people mm. who have different cultural values, multiculturalism. Right, multiculturalism, to be able to, but 
what I think you're saying is that there is a very another tr strand yes. of liberalism yes. that actually is a strand that says that there are substantive liberal values, mm. right? So that there are particular kinds of institutional forms, mm. there are p substantive liberal values mm. that need to be the markers of yeah. a liberal society. Yeah. And the, the problem is that when you move from the first conception of liberalism, which is a liberalism about, in a sense, the governance of difference, right. to a liberalism that is, in fact, about the mobilization and promotion of a particular substantive set of yes, values, yes. then I think, and this is this was Louis Hartz's argument many years ago about, about liberal absolutism mm. and how you know that it's when liberalism takes that second term, yes. term that it becomes intolerant and yes, becomes absolutist. Yes, yes. And so, I, I would argue that it is in domestic context liberalism is a lot more tolerant to multiculturalism yeah. than international level. Right. Especially because it is tied to hegemony. Right. Liberal hegemony, Western yes. hegemony, right. and it is not tolerant to oppositional views as much as it should be. Right. So, if that's the case, can liberals ever adjust to the rise of China, which is not going to be liberal, which is only uh, we don't even know what form it will it will shape, but clearly not democratic. How will liberal order exist, coexist with this uh, emerging order that is your problematic in the right. second book? Right. Yeah. So I think that there's, you know, there's clearly different arguments mm. that are out there that liberals are making, and a very common argument that's being made is that, uh, is that in fact, you know, liberalism after the end of the Cold War overreached. Mm. Right? The liberal states tried to make what was actually an order comprising liberal democratic states mm. into a global. Yeah, end of right. history sort of logic, yeah. And, and, and for people who held that position, that then that overreach was the mistake. Yes. Right? And that in fact what liberals should do, mm -hmm. or liberal states should do, is in a sense contract back mm -hmm. to the core. The kind of the core mm -hmm. of liberal democratic states mm -hmm. where you can have thick forms of kind of liberal politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then have a thinner form of a, of a kind of liberal politics mm -hmm. with other states, which is much more of the kind of uh, pluralist, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we live together under the rule of law, we respect, we trade, we, res we, trade, <laughs> yeah. we respect each other's sovereignty, yes. we minimise, you know, we, we, we could probably have quite strong conventions of collective security, mm -hmm. you know, peace through law, yeah. um, but what we do is that, and, and you might even be able to, you might even be able to uh, promote human rights, mm -hmm. but allow human rights to be promoted through kind of diplomatic, diplomatic institutions and, and, yeah. and processes rather than mm -hmm. uh, through uh, much more interventionary yeah. uh, processes. Because it creates reactive nationalism in some right. places. So I, get, I think that I have some sympathy with it, that argument. My mm. problem with that argument is mm. that it's too state-centric. Mm -hmm. uh, and that there is a view, and uh, if there is a view out there that the liberal international order was a kind of house that Washington built after yes. 1945. Yes. Yes. And that, uh, and that too, you know, not very always consistent. It, sometimes it was liberal, sometimes it was not. Very illiberal, mm -hmm. right? And I think the story of the liberal international order is a story that 
uh, has many more dimensions mm -hmm. and that is the product of many more hands. Yes. You know, the, if you, you know, I've Global in many senses. Right. Yeah. You know, I've written, you know, I did a book in 2013 on individual rights and mm -hmm. the making of the international system. Mm -hmm. and my argument there was that, that, that the human rights regime of the post-1945 period was very much the product of post-colonial states. Mm -hmm. It was not a product of Western states. Yeah, we were talking about Ambedkar in our conversation right. yesterday. And, but, it, but even you know, down to the negotiation of the key instruments, yeah, yeah. you know, it's the case that if you if you had relied on Western states, mm -hmm. then you would have ended up with human rights human rights covenants mm -hmm. that had federal state clauses embedded in them that allowed them not to have you know absolved them of having to apply human rights within their own state jurisdictions. Right. There would have been a colonial state clause mm. that meant that they didn't have to apply them within their colonies. Yes. You know, and it Trusteeship was, and it would have been it was mm. a post-colonial states that mm. actually mm. universalized human rights, mm. right, and made them genuinely. Some of them accepted willingly. It's not like coerced. Well, no, exactly, and in fact, they were you know post-colonial states like like India, for example, mm. were leading proponents of the priority of civil and political rights over social and economic rights. Yes. It's completely the opposite of the way the story is told. Uh, and, you because know... Because the Constitution gives a lot more ascendancy to those... Exactly, people. exactly. And, this, and the separation of the of this human rights into the two covenants mm -hmm. was actually something that India supported, not because it favoured, through the standard explanation, mm -hmm. because it favoured social and economic rights over civil and political rights, mm -hmm. but because the Indian Constitution had already the designers of the Indian Constitution had already made a decision mm -hmm. that these were different kinds of rights, yes. that civil and political rights were justiciable, yes. right, in courts, mm -hmm. whereas social and economic rights were not. No, right? it's, not e it's not easy to implement. Right. Exactly. So you have written on legitimacy and culture and legitimation challenge. Um, how do legitimacy-seeking actors overcome this sort of, because they can bring counter-legitimation strategies? socialization problem arises. So liberalism is a powerful legitimation builder for the West. Why would West abandon it? Because without that legitimacy attached to liberal values, liberal system, what has got the West got? I mean, the West has got money, I guess, but, but more than that, the West legitimacy is in its liberal order, isn't it? So I, first of all, I don't think I see the West mm. abandoning the yeah. kind of underlying mm liberal commitments. I think that these are contested mm. clearly with the rise of populism. Yes. Uh, but even populism is, you know, a lot of the discourse of populism occur is, is played out within the terms of a particular kind of democratic mm. debate. Yes, sure. uh, and so there is a contestation mm -hmm. within liberalism mm -hmm. about what things like democracy, the rights of individuals, the rule of law, minority the of courts, yeah. minority rights, yeah. what these all mean. And these have been heavily contested areas. Mm -hmm. you know, we, f we forget that it's, you know, 1967 mm -hmm. is the Civil Rights Bill in the US, mm -hmm. right? Is that, you know, we imagine mm -hmm. these as kind of perfect liberal polities. I mean, Australia itself, it's 66 yes. that Indigenous peoples get recognize the citizens of the constitution yes. you know what kind of Canada, liberal, what exactly. kind of liberal polities yeah. were we yeah. before these moments yes. and what and what and these are still unresolved mm. issues yeah. so liberalism is an ongoing project right. 
and it advances through struggle. Yes, ups and downs. Um, and ups and downs. It, it's not that there was a moment of creation of a liberal polity mm -hmm. and then everything was set in place mm -hmm. and now we're in a moment of crisis. Yes. It's, you know, we can look, we can look back mm -hmm. through our very recent history right. and see the content, con contended nature of mm -hmm. many of the elements mm -hmm. of liberal democracy. But one thing though, liberals always are good leaders to come out and show the values. What is missing today is the leadership. Well, again, I think one of the things here is, you know, where do we look for leadership? Mm -hmm. You know, where do we look for the agency in this story? So, you know, yes, I despair. I look at, our, at, at the Australian Parliament and I just <laughs> despair at the kind of level of discourse and the, you know, and, and it's very easy to say, well, you know, the giants of the past are missing and these just all look like midgets. Mm -hmm. You know, these are just less, you know, these are not, yeah. uh, you know, the same caliber of, yeah. of leaders. But I think actually if we look elsewhere mm -hmm. in society, I mean, for me, I actually think we need to be, uh, you know, when, when those of us of, of a generation where what we thought as being uh, dynamic democratic politics, which is 60s and 70s. Right. And I think now we need to be looking at things like Extinction Rebellion mm -hmm. and places like that, where we see young people, but not only young people, mm -hmm. are really developing new kinds new of politics. Social movements. You know, yeah. New kinds of social movements, mm -hmm. new kinds of agency mm -hmm. that are reimagining what politics is. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to broaden yeah. our view to think about, well, and, and you know, frankly, it's been through uh, sub, what I would call subaltern forms of agency, mm -hmm. that some of the most important transformations in our societies have happened. Yeah. They use, they're using social media and naming and shaming and that strategies. Me too. Right. New and, forms of mobilization, yeah. Yeah. new ways of articulating mm -hmm. values, uh, and I think this is this is what we need to understand. Yes. Right. So I want to bring to the notion of global IR that has been in our bingo for a while and you represent at least one element of it. Where do you see that prospects of a global IR developing in our discipline? Our discipline is still not completely sure whether, you know, even at ISA, you know, there's panels and after panels, but how do we develop a truly global IR given that IR is very Western dominated and still, you know, the places where it is taught uh, seriously are unfortunately or fortunately the best. Right. So, for me, mm. um, I come at this question from a simple observation, mm. from this issue from simple observation. Mm. And it's an observation that runs against the standard way in which international relations is taught and understood. Mm. I mean, you know, you, you would have been the same as, same as me, you know, when we started learning international relations, we learnt about international relations as about relations between external states. Yes. And we learnt that story as being, it had a very long history mm. and, uh, and you know, maybe the origins were Westphalian, but that's a long time in the past. Yes. And then <clears throat> what we did was that we studied what Martin White called patterns of recurrence and repetition. Mm. Selected, uh, selected ones, not, not all. Not all. Yeah. But this was a story of a, of a world of sovereign states. Mm. And that... For a long time, that struck me as just a, a nonsense mm -hmm. undergirding our field. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a world of sovereign states only existed in in entirety since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. 
Right? There was no universal system of sovereign states mm. prior mm. to the 1970s. Prior to that, for 400 years, you had a world where there was a small group of sovereign states empires. that were nested in a network and system of empires. Mm -hmm. Most people lived in, in empires, yes. not in sovereign states. Mm -hmm. And most sovereign states were also simultaneously imperial powers. Yeah. And so what we've actually seen, what that means is that international relations, even if you wanted to define it narrowly mm -hmm. as being relations between sovereign states, and even if we went back and said, well, it's back to you know, it's back to Westphalia. Mm. These were always embedded in a global context. Mm. That was that was a context of empire. Mm. It was also much more than that. It was a context of global transactions. There were much earlier waves of global globalization that other scholars mm. have, have documented in mm. great detail. That the West was not a product of its own no. endogenous processes. Mm. It was very much influenced by exogenous yes. forces. And by interactions. Now, as soon as you there's a book called the Eastern Origins of Western Civilization. It's John, John Hobson's book. Yes. But as soon as you recognise that as a fact, yeah. that a world of sovereign states mm. is a new thing, mm. and that actually, prior to that, that world of sovereign states was a parochial world, right, embedded in empires, the European empires. Then you yeah. can't. Then, then the move to global IR mm. just flows from that. Right? You can't think about IR mm. in any other way mm. once you've recognised that fact. Mm. So for me, that's how I come to it. Mm. And for me, thinking about the evolution of international order mm. has been very much about how you think about that transition from that world of empires, mm. that hybrid world, sovereignty, empire, yes to a world of universal sovereignty and what that means. Um, now, of course, there are other dimensions yes. to the Global IR project. The other, you know, an important part of that project is not just retelling the empirics of IR yeah. from a sort of global perspective, but also the sort of epistemics mm. of, of the field. Right. That the idea that our theories have been Western they're based on a very narrow set of human experiences uh, and historical records. Yes. And uh, war and peace itself in the European context. In the European context. And that, uh, and that one of the things we need to do with Global IR is to expand the range of ideas yes. that we have, to draw on ideas that are, and experiences that are coming out of the non-Western world different history. Actually, that's, that is one of my aim of, our aim in this uh, global network of uh, peaceful uh, change that we are working on this, is to show there are different ideas, different parts of the world. Some of them are privileged more often than others. Right. That if you want to talk about peaceful change, we, we need to look at cultures, civilizational ideas, right. and how do people organize themselves? Right. How do they relate to each other? How exactly. do they organize violent context? Right. And the Western treatment of violence is very different sometimes from the Indonesian, right. or, you know, Buddhist ideas. In, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there are, you know, I've tried in, uh, in my own work, and, and I think Andrew Phillips' work is exemplary mm -hmm. of this. Uh, is to um, is to try and rethink uh, core issues in IR by expanding the empirical record. Yes. So the 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 second volume 
of the uh, of the of the culture project uh, with Andrew, um, we brought in specialists on the Ottoman Empire yes. and specialists on Qing China and earlier periods of China, uh, so that we could actually place those that historical those historical records in dialogue with the Western yes. uh, European story. Mm -hmm. And I think that you get a much richer, richer uh, understanding mm -hmm. of the relationship, in this case, mm -hmm. a relationship of culture mm -hmm. to international order. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, uh, the work that Andrew Phillips did with, with Jason Sharman on the Indian Ocean region, mm -hmm. where I think they, they've really successfully problematized mm -hmm. the kind of core assumptions that we had in IR mm -hmm. about the relationship between interaction mm -hmm and isomorphic developments. You know? mm -hmm. So the standard arguments were, if you have high interaction, you get like units. Yes. Right? Whereas their show, actually, the Indian Ocean region for 500 years okay. had high interaction but great diversity of polities. Yeah. And they explained why that's the case. Yeah. And these are, these are really good examples mm -hmm. of being able to step out of the European empirical record mm -hmm. and really problematize our mm -hmm. assumptions. Mm -hmm. I think though that there is another area that is that is harder mm -hmm. and tougher. And that's the question of how of bringing ideas and theories mm -hmm. that might come out of uh, a non-Western context mm -hmm. and placing them in dialogue yes. with Western thought because it's Especially in a positivist way. Isn't it? Especially in a positivist way, but it also raises questions about that I think we haven't grappled with mm -hmm. as a field, which are difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And these are questions about well, there's clearly an ethical issue mm -hmm. involved there that we want ethically and normatively mm -hmm. to bring in as many voices as possible. Mm -hmm. But if we want to go beyond that and we want to actually think about the value of theories, yes. then we have to have some criteria by which we judge the value of theories. Now, of course, the standard criteria that have been used in the field, uh, we judge the value of a theory on, on its heuristic power. Yes. Right? So, is the, are we to engage non-Western theories and Western theories on the basis of their relative heuristic power, yeah. or should we be thinking about it in a different way? In that context, uh, my own view is that we can really productively mm -hmm. only think about these things in relation to specific questions. Mm -hmm. We can't, there are no answers, we can't arrive at answers mm -hmm. to these in, in, the, in the abstract. Right. We need to say, well, this is the particular problematic we want to understand. Mm -hmm. What are the ideas that can help us right. to understand that yes. uh, and do it in relationship to that? But I think there are some gnarly questions here. Mm -hmm. Uh, that we need to address, right. that I think it's not sufficient to say mm -hmm. we need to just bring more and more voices in. Mm -hmm. So finally, what is your new project? You are writing a third volume on the subject and what is the content or particular idea you want to highlight there? So what I want to do in the, in the third book mm -hmm. is, and the third book is another monograph like the first one, is to, in a sense, bring the whole argument through to the 19th and 20, 21st, through 19th to 21st century. Okay. And what I want to do is to, is to try and understand what I see as a revolution in the organization mm -hmm. of culture globally. Mm -hmm. 
So if you, if you take the middle of the 19th century, the way in which sort of politics and culture was governed was on the basis of a explicitly hierarchical and exclusionary set of principles. Right. So we had, you know, we had a set of civilizational ideas that were used to justify the organization of the world into under European tutelage mm. into a framework of empires. Internally within Europe, we have principles of, kind of ethno-nationalism being used as the principal justification for self-determination. And through all of that, all of that is permeated by ideas about race. Mm. Not everything was reduced to race, but race was shot through these arguments. Mm. But by the 1970s, the basic elements of that diversity regime, Mm. the the idea of diversity regimes is central to the the trilogy. Mm. That diversity, the principal elements of that diversity regime have been swept away. Mm. I'm not saying that racism has disappeared, but what I am saying is that Instead, by the 1970s, the idea that civilizational hierarchy mm. is a legitimate basis for organizing the globe mm. is gone. Mm. Right? Ethno-nationalism as the principal basis of which self-determination is gone. Mm. The international community is favoring civic forms of nationalism yeah. embedded in the human rights regime and norms of multiculturalism. Mm. And, then, and race mm. itself has had to become a subterranean mm-hmm. force. Right? We all know it still exists. Mm-hmm. But it can't be articulated as a legitimate basis on which to distinguish peoples and politics. Yeah. But it is still, race is still an understudied subject in that. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But there's, there's very good work mm-hmm. now that is, that is coming out in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to, the, the, the third book, which I'm tentatively calling Governing Difference, mm. and Historical Sociology of the Liberal International Order, okay. is really about telling that story. Because I think that revolution is a revolution of enormous magnitude. Mm. It's also the revolution that is now being challenged and mm. threatened by the return mm. of kind of civilizational chauvinism, mm. you know, ethno-nationalism, yes. politicized yeah. religion. Mm. And explicit, you know, white supremacism, um, and so I think actually understanding mm-hmm. how we escaped that world mm-hmm. to a world where those principles were not legitimate principles mm-hmm. of rule is actually very important for understanding what's yeah. at stake yeah. Yeah. in the present in the present situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the story, I think, is an important part of the story is going to be that this is not a shift from a non-liberal order to a liberal order. Mm. It's a shift that occurred, a revolution that occurred in the liberal Within international liberal, order. Yeah. Right? Because it was many of these things, these, 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 what we see hierarchical exclusionary principles mm. were mobilized by liberal states mm. and liberal thinkers. Mm. Right? And I think one of the things that we find most uncomfortable mm. now uh, is thinking that liberals could possibly have justified the things that they justified. Yes. Then, where now liberals justify precisely the opposite. Yeah. And so there's a story to be told yeah. about. I, I think there's a tendency in telling the story of the liberal international order to kind of 
wish away those elements, yes. right? To say, well, don't you know, think about them. Yeah, don't. Or, 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 you know, you have your paragraph that says, well, <laughs> of course, it happens. you know, liberalism was into imperialism as well, and then just kind of move on, right? But I actually think that I think there's these are these kind of modes mm. of political political cultural governance mm. are connected to each other. Yes. And I understand change in the whole process these right. structures. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you and hope to see the book very soon. Well, it won't be very soon. Two or three years, I think. But thank you very much. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. <laughs>